0: Welcome back to Forming Function. I'm Brian. And I'm Sam. We are recording this in September, which in Detroit is the Month of Design Festival, which celebrates Detroit's appointment as a UNESCO City of Design, the only one in the U.S. And so I thought Sam and I could take a look at some other cities that are UNESCO Cities of Design and um, say what they're about.
1: So uh, based on today's topics i chose the world's second largest french-speaking city do you know what it is montreal it yeah okay dang okay cool yeah so uh in 91 montreal became the first north american city with a specific role of design commissioner dedicated exclusively to development and promotion of design um Let's see, strategies that highlight uh, Montreal's designation as a city of design are uh, ensuring better recognitions for designers, improving access to public commissions for designers, raising awareness of the talents of Montreal designers and architects and developing their markets and broadening the use of design and architecture competitions, uh, which has resulted in efforts to increase design quality of buildings and public spaces. And just because I, f- I love a fun fact, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in Montreal, apparently the design field is responsible for 34% of the overall economic impact of the city's cultural sector.
0: Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. Good job, Montreal.
1: Good job, Montreal. We love you.
0: I chose to do Dundee, Scotland, which is the only UNESCO city of design in the UK. Um, we've been pretty Scotland heavy on the podcast for some reason (laughs) in this season. Uh, but I actually was just in Dundee. I went to go visit specifically to go to their design museum actually when I was, um, overseas in May, uh, they've got this previously had a history of shipbuilding lately. Their design expertise is in fashion, textiles, jewelry, but, um, some of the unexpected ones for me were comic books Like comic book graphics. Wow. There's a number of comic book publishers there. Dennis the Menace actually is from (laughs) Dundee, Scotland.
1: That tracks for me a little bit. When you say comic book graphics, I immediately think anime, graphic novels.
0: Yeah, like superheroes.
1: Yeah, like more American or like Japanese, not Scotland. But Dennis the Menace feels right for me. Yeah,
0: he feels British.
1: He feel Yeah, he feels very Scottish somehow. Uh,
0: and then the other one that was surprising to me was video game design.
1: Oh, that is interesting.
0: Yeah, they made the like old school game Lemmings. Grand Theft Auto was made in Dundee. Whoa! And they actually uh, produced Minecraft for consoles there, too. They were the first city to ever offer a degree in video game design.
1: Interesting. Yeah,
0: so you wouldn't expect that from... No, Scotland.
1: you wouldn't, especially because they're such major industries that I think are more associated with other countries and other cultures. And clearly they, they have such a big impact.
0: Dundee is known for being a rough city, was my impression when I was there. So I think Grand Theft Auto coming from there might make sense.
1: <laughs> I was just thinking they really knew the American market.
0: <laughs> I guess there were some good parallels. All right. So if you've been listening, you've probably heard that at the end of our episodes, we always ask that if you have a question about design that you want to know more about, that uh, you should reach out and ask us. And today we actually have our very first listener submitted question about design. We have Corey Morris in the studio here with us today. Hi, Brian. Hi, Sam. How's it going? (laughs) So good. I have known Corey since about second grade. So we actually go way back. And Corey actually plays Dungeons and Dragons with Sam and I. That's right. I do. I am a muscular penguin monk,
2: and I'm going to throw fish at you. So, <laughs> uh,
0: so yeah, Corey, tell us what your question is.
2: Well, absolutely. Um, I was at uh, one of the few remaining malls in uh, southeastern Michigan, Southland Mall. I don't know if you're familiar with the, you know the downward trends of malls in general, but I was there. Uh, my wonderful grandmother had bought me a pair of slacks and they were too big. And so I was trying to return them to the local Macy's. And so while you're waiting for your grandmother to drive two hours away to help refund some pants, cause she couldn't just wait till the next day, you, uh, you try to eat up some time. And so I went to the local furniture purveyor. Um, just think of a massive commercial warehouse and, uh, with lots of furniture all over the place. Uh, so I go over there because, you know, I always like to like look at what's contemporary, what are people buying. Uh, when I was growing up, my parents used to go uh, window shopping for houses. And so in the true millennial fashion, I picked that up in the exact same way, except with furniture, because those are o- like pieces of furniture are almost accessible. <laughs> unlike houses that are, you know. Yeah, you know, not not in this to- market. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I'm walking through the first thing I do. I get inside And I'm attacked by this salesperson, very eager to sell me something. I'm sorry, sir. I'm not interested. I'm just looking around. Thank you. And they leave me alone for a few minutes. But
1: only a few minutes.
2: Only a few minutes. And so I'm walking around and like, just as you would probably imagine, there's a lot of beige, a lot of white, a lot of black, a lot of like faux wood, like it's plywood, but it's been sanded or altered to look like real wood. And... I get into the, the living room section, and there's a bunch of sectionals, a bunch of couches, uh, love seats, usually in that fused, like, Tetris L-shaped situation, and I'm wondering to myself, why is there that extra section at the end without, like, the back brace? Like, why are they making sectionals where you either have to awkwardly sit up without any back support, or you gotta curl up like a dog or a goblin? And just, you know, nuzzle your way on there like a pet. So, that's my question for you guys. What's up with those sectionals without back support?
1: Listen, Corey, on behalf of all goblins, I do have to say some of us are comfortable all curled up like that, okay? So... There is that.
0: So there's your answer. Thank you for coming today, Corey. Thank you, guys. I'll be back next week. Now, Corey posed this question to a group of my friends, and it occurred to me that this could actually be a full story with such a simple question. And Corey, unfortunately for you, this question is going to take us back to the French aristocracy, to the homes of the elite.
2: Oh, the elite. Is this before or after they were beheaded?
0: This was certainly before they were beheaded. okay. Yeah. It'd
1: be weird if it was after.
0: Uh, what do you think was? <laughs> what do you think was most important to them in a home?
2: Probably the ability to clean the furniture, because I heard the aristocrats were very messy people.
1: Oh, they were disgusting people!
2: Just fecal matter everywhere. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what, what do you think, Sam?
1: Well, that's not fair because I've done my own research for today, but I would say like. Elegance impressing their peers with all of their riches.
0: Yeah, that's that's pretty close. So, like through the 1600s in France and England, the only thing that mattered about a residence, like its facade, the interior design, the furniture, was the power it portrayed and its visible representation of the owner's wealth. The expense, complexity, and rarity was literally all that mattered. No design thought was put into convenience, storage, and certainly not comfort.
1: They're comforted by all their wealth.
0: <laughs> yeah, like a dragon <laughs> or Scrooge McDuck.
1: Right. Scrooge McDuck, exactly.
0: Yeah, those piles of gold certainly aren't providing good back support.
1: Right. That's not good exercise, swimming in mountains of gold. He didn't do it for comfort or any sort of physical benefit.
0: He knew we were watching. Right. And he liked it. He
1: <laughs> this is taking an interesting turn.
0: Uh, So any furniture that was made for seating at this time period was typically made out of rigid carved wood and it might perhaps have a single layer of fabric on the seat that would have some intricate textile patterning on it.
1: Probably no butt dip.
0: No, certainly no butt dip and possibly not even a backrest. Like it might just be a stool. Ew. Because when you sat, you sat upright with proper etiquette and pomp to it. And there were entire rules about when you were even allowed to sit based on the situation you were in and whose presence you were in.
1: This kind of explains the crazy fashions too because, you know, you had corsets and it's like, it's probably a lot easier to sit up straight when you got literal boning holding you up, but also your huge hoop skirts, you weren't going to sit down, so.
0: You're exactly right. Like the intent wasn't just to convey The Most imposing appearance, but also show off your formal and extravagant clothing like another show of your wealth.
1: I mean, I've gone to parties and like not taken off like my jacket because it's part of the look, but that's a little far.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And you didn't even have an opportunity to be casual because you were always in the spotlight. Uh, When Louis XIV built Versailles, his second wife, Madame de Montenot, Montenot? we're going to go with Montenot. Later said of him, <laughs> he never even thinks about discomfort. All that counts for him is grandeur and magnificence. But change was coming. Spurred on by Louis the Fourteenth. actually, royal families previously had one set of furniture that would travel with them between their residences.
1: No. They had to pack their furniture?
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> they took it with them everywhere.
1: My family has a cabin where every time we go up we have to pack towels and sheets and that's too much for me that is beyond
0: yeah and as as a child louis and his mother had an experience where they had to flee abruptly to an unfurnished home during a civil war and they were forced to sleep on piles of hay oh woe is them
1: i mean that's probably better though than an air mattress today they didn't (laughs) end up on the ground when they woke up
0: Right, but like it wasn't about the comfort, it was about the embarrassment. Oh. And, and from that, Louis decided that when he was older, every chateau would be fully furnished, which vastly increased the furniture market for royals. Thank God. And Louis was also patronizing this new enclave in Paris where he appointed Charles Lebrun as the director, and the group started making the first pieces of furniture designed and produced by architects. And as a result of those two changes, the increased furniture market and the architect-driven furniture, between around 1670 and the mid-1700s, French designers invented most of the furniture arrangements that are still being used today.
2: Would that explain why most like proper names for furniture are, are all
0: like, French in origin? That would exactly <laughs> explain it, yeah. Okay. For the most part, there's some that come from English design like later down the road, too, but a lot of them... Uh, Especially, like, furniture for sitting came from that French period of time. Louis' foray into a comfortable lifestyle had its start when he married his second wife. Since she was considered to be below the station of a queen for some reason, Mm -hmm. you know, royal drama, the relationship led Louis to take on a separate private life from his public-facing royal life. And since that side of his relationship wasn't seen... uh, Madame de (laughs) (laughs) Montanau yearned for a a casual style. And the first piece of furniture that she ordered was one of the very first sofas that was ever made, and it quickly took the royal life by storm. Within just a couple years of their marriage, the king's sister-in-law complained that, quote, protocol and etiquette were completely done away with, in the salon, anyone, even the lowliest officer, was stretched out on a full-length sofa. The very sight of it disgusted me. Like, that was the old culture wars. (laughs) How
1: dare you be comfortable.
0: Yeah. How dare you be in my presence, to be honest.
1: And especially in my presence, comfortable.
0: Yeah, I saw some story where, like, some kid, like, passed up, like, the opportunity to sit at the stool next to the king or queen and, like, went and sat on a couch instead. And it was, like, the most dramatic thing that ever happened to the royal court.
2: I mean, yeah. They didn't have the news back then. Like, they were making their own little stories.
1: That sounds like trauma. Like, real trauma.
2: I don't know how they ever
0: recovered. From there, comfortable furniture exploded quickly across France and England for a variety of reasons. People began to dress more casually and more comfortably, and they started to read for pleasure. Ew. (laughs) Uh, Cotton textiles and upholstery had become more readily available with a desire for plush seating, uh, catching storm. Even the first toilets were upholstered, actually.
1: Push for your tush.
0: <laughs> there, yeah. Now, is this coinciding with the
2: Industrial Revolution then, or are they were just importing a whole bunch of stuff?
0: Corey, you're my history guy, so you're going to have to tell me between, like, around the year 1700, was that the right time period to be the Industrial Revolution? starting to come around, but definitely during colonization, so they definitely had more resources. I'm going to guess the first ones, just knowing my art history and like what these chairs looked like, were probably sewn by hand. Oh, then they probably wouldn't have been part of that mass industrial complex. But but that's pure speculation.
1: It sounds a little early to me. A
0: little. Uh, So all of these comfort lifestyle changes went hand in hand with more comfortable furniture as well, and elite wealth became less defined by the expensive objects that you own. And more by a wealth of leisure time at their disposal to live comfortably and enjoyably.
1: That sounds uh, similar to today.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, I think you've got a blend of the two today. You've got Bezos out on his super yacht.
1: Okay, Bezos.
0: Living comfortably and also showing off the super yacht.
1: He's, uh, he's not... A normal bar of comparison i'm thinking more like like part of the five percent
2: not even that but if you look at it from like a day-to-day common person's perspective if you're working from home you have so much extra more free time than your contemporary working on location and that is a sign of envy and luxury especially in our generation
0: that's true that's the only luxury we're going to be able to afford especially
2: since we'll be working for the rest of our lives
1: I don't know what you're talking about. I buy a lot of luxury secondhand.
0: <laughs> what's what's your luxurious purchase you've bought lately?
1: Okay, it's not actually luxurious. It's like, <laughs> like name brand blazers. We
0: outed her live on the podcast.
1: It's from The Limited.
0: Hey,
2: if you've gone out for brunch in the past two weeks, you're living the, the life of luxury. That's all I'm going to say.
0: Why are you looking at me?
2: cause you're over there I know why you're looking at me <laughs>
1: I was told my Domino's bill was getting a little high so
0: <laughs> she got the anchovies and the olives yeah stick to one topping sandwich <laughs>
1: what can I say I'm frivolous
0: <clears throat> so anyway Corey going back to your question at hand the, the piece of furniture you were looking at was deriving from a chaise sectional or sometimes called a chase. In uh, in English, a chaise long. How did you? Is it C H E Z? I know I'm pronouncing that one correctly. No,
1: it's it's C H A I S S E.
2: Is there an aigu at the end? No, end?
0: It's, oh. it's chaise longue. long. Okay, okay. But people Thank call it a chase lounge oh, in okay. English. Oh, okay. I can see. I can see. Which okay. is not technically correct, but it happens. It's
1: not technically incorrect. You know what they're saying.
0: So the 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 chaise part of its origins date back to this period of French history. Um, Even though ancient Egyptians and Greeks did have similar furniture uh, to it, um, really the, the French derivative is the direct descendant of what we're using today. And so what it is, is a long upholstered chair, long enough that you can stretch your legs out on it. And it's a low back at one end for reclining. And it sometimes has an arm running partial length, Along the backside of it, the most popular image you probably could think of for this chair is psychoanalysis, because Freud started the use of the chaise long to encourage free association. Mm, yeah. Mm. So you can imagine like someone lounging at that. Or I, I personally have seen like many romanticist paintings that have chaise longs in them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, for for the listener, Corey is doing a luxurious, relaxed pose.
1: Now, is this the same thing that was also Hold uh like a fainting couch for women because their corsets were too tight. please hold, but also they had delicate constitutions
2: no, I've always known it as like a psychiatry chair uh relating to Brian's Freud Association,
0: but that also makes sense.
1: there was like a settee is another
0: yeah,' is that how you pronounce that Sure. Uh, yeah, I think a fainting couch is really just any version of a daybed. So ah. a settee and a chaise are probably both fitting into that category in some way. Um, but it was initially invented by the French as a way to rest without retiring to your bedroom in kind of a half sitting position. So, yes, a daybed. A settee is just a long seat with a back. So a chaise okay. long doesn't necessarily have a back. It might have a half back rail on the, on the back end, but it's really more about sitting and keeping your legs outstretched, whereas a settee mm-hmm. is more uh, meant for, like, two people.
1: Okay, so cousins.
0: So, Corey, obviously what you saw though was part of a sectional couch. Mm-hmm. So it's more of a modern variation of the furniture that I imagine most listeners are familiar with or have in their living room. But if not, sectionals are two or more upholstered furniture pieces that can be reconfigured and customized to different shapes to fit a space.
2: Yeah, usually like a couch and a love loveseat.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so where would you guess that sectional furniture first appeared? France. Well, after your story,
2: yeah, France. It's not France. Is it the France of the new world?
0: Are we going back to Montreal? You're getting closer. The first iterations were actually popularized in a somewhat small bubble around the Washington, D.C. area, there's really very few sources that have documented the trend. Like it's hard to find a lot about this, but there are select artifacts remaining of these Virginia sectionals that were built in pieces and they were usually symmetrical and on casters. And the reasoning was kind of the opposite of Louis the 14th, where he wanted to furnish every home. Politicians and military members around the Washington DC area wanted portable furniture since they were frequently relocating residences. And so there were local companies that produced a number of these pieces uh, really just like that didn't spread beyond that region. And you can imagine, especially like in the early days of the colonies, like these politicians were constantly going back from their home state to D.C. to like they weren't staying there full time. So, And so you're implying they would get in their horse
2: and buggy with their their five servants in the back and they would have like a large little caravan of just sectionals
1: i'm sure there was other furniture too not just their sectional
0: yeah and i think it was a pretty small thing like like i said there's not a lot of documentation about this but there are pieces that exist so we know it happened but uh i don't think it was the major influence on sectionals coming to be
1: when did cup holders come into play
0: (laughs) i don't have that answer for you just kidding the real hard-hitting questions but the modern rebirth of, of sectional furniture as we know it today started in the early modernism movement around like the 1930s. It's hard to pinpoint an exact first sectional sofa as a number of designers all released similar concepts around the same time. Like Carbusier released his LC2 and LC3 pieces in the late 1920s. These were like... um You've probably seen this chair in like corporate lobbies and other places. It's really black and boxy. Oh yeah. Um, I'm sure just saying that conjures the image in your head of what I'm talking about. But Google it if you if you want to see what it looks like. The LC2, LC3. But these aren't really fully customizable. Uh, they could be stacked next to each other, uh, but but not actually connect. Car uh, Clint, a Danish designer, introduced a two piece sectional sofa as part of his work. That would be a precursor to modern Danish furniture. And Russell Wright introduced a sectional furniture piece in the U.S. around that time, too. But the commercialization of the sectional sofa really began with Gilbert Rohde and his time at Herman Miller.
1: Oh, I know that name.
0: Yeah. So Herman Miller is a furniture company headquartered in Zeeland, Michigan, and it was founded in 1905. Uh, It was initially... Producing historic revival styles, actually. So, Rody a, a Bauhaus furniture designer. Ugh, Bauhaus. Uh, he visited Herman Miller seeking a contract to produce his furniture, and he tried to convince the founder, DJ Dupree, that modern middle-class life required modern furniture. Basically, modern problems require modern solutions.
1: <laughs> He's not wrong. And now the sectional is all over the middle class.
0: Yeah, and and Dupree agreed. uh, He was even convinced that his way of making furniture was, in his own words, immoral. Dupree's (laughs) words for how
1: Dupree makes Dupree's furniture is immoral.
0: Yeah, Rhodey convinced him that his furniture was immoral. Like, because it was so modern, and anti-biblical? No, it was more that they were copying older styles and taking credit for work that other people had done, basically. Mm. And they were making cheap furniture and using ornamentation to hide the imperfections. So they were making stuff that just really was shoddy and trying to cover it up.
1: It sounds like Rococo.
0: It sounds very modern. <laughs>
1: Although Rococo wasn't necessarily shoddy. We'll get to it. We'll get to it.
0: We'll get there. Stay tuned. Yeah, so Hill- Herman Miller like shifted to a modern design focus from that. And one of those modern solutions from Rohde was the modular sectional furniture with an increase in flexibility. He realized that armless chairs allowed greater freedom in reconfiguring different layouts. And the corner chair was introduced as a game changer in the L and U shaped arrangements. And so from that, other companies followed suit and more and more started being produced, became popular over the decades uh, until now, where they just, dominate the furniture market. So putting those two ideas together to get back to Corey's furniture store experience, why is the chaise sectional so popular to sectional furniture, particularly from the late 1900s to today? And unfortunately, there's not really a concrete answer for this. But I think there's a number of reasons.
1: This is not a good way to convince people to submit questions when we're like, we actually don't know. We can't figure it out. We can't provide you any.
0: Well, it's, it's really more that like it's been a slow progression over decades that it's built up. So there's not really any one concrete point where you can just say, here's the tipping point. But I think I've got some good convincing arguments of why. Okay. So, I mean, first of all, it's flexible. You can sit on it. You can recline on it. Um. It offers variety for social situations, so if you're hosting an event, you're likely going to want to sit with guests, but if you're home alone, it's more comfortable to lay down and watch TV in your living room. Second, it's an effective way to utilize an otherwise awkward corner, so rather than sit and scoot your way all the way into a corner seat, stretching your legs out is just a more natural way to fit yourself into that corner on the couch.
1: I guess, the non-goblin position.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then third, the lack of the backrest for part of the chair lends itself well to the rise of open concept residential layouts. So when the end of your L or U section is open to a living space on both sides, it's good to have that versatility that you can face either way. But with that becoming so much more popular lately, I think there is a, you know, that is a strong reason that you can reverse it if you need to. If you're sitting, putting your shoes on before you go out facing the, you know, if it's between the dining room and the living room, there's a lot of opportunities for it. So uh, does that does that answer it for you, Corey? I
2: like your theories. I think there was a lot of interesting history there. Going back to the French makes a lot of sense because they were very ornate and pompous, and so that fits my original mindset. It's not the most efficient piece of furniture. It's there because it can be there, but it is very modern.
0: Well, you're welcome.
1: That's what we're here for. That's
0: that's why we're here. So if you've got a question. Let us know. We will go down that rabbit hole for you.
1: Forming function podcast at gmail.com.
0: One, I do have a final fun fact.
1: Yes, fun facts. <laughs> uh
0: what's the difference between a sofa and a couch? Oh what? Well, they're both long linear pieces of upholstered furniture, but a sofa is typically more formal. It's for sitting upright and it's gonna have an armrest on either side. And a couch is meant to be more casual. It's meant to be lied down on. And it typically doesn't have an armrest. It can, but it it typically wouldn't.
1: Okay, so you mentioned Rococo. Talking about Chez Longs, French. Yes, thank you. I do have another bottle of wine with a French name. Oh shit! It's from California. Oh shit! We haven't talked about the wine.
0: I was waiting for we that. We didn't talk about the
1: wine yet. I don't want okay, to interrupt. Okay.
0: okay. This will be yeah. Okay, <laughs> we'll go back what, to the beginning. What's what's our wine? No, we don't have to put it at the beginning. Stay here.
1: Okay, in the middle. Today's wine is brought to you by. Bordeaux, France. Chateau Moulinat.
0: <laughs> let's let, let's I think Corey is a little French. He can give us a little uh, Chateau
2: Moulinet. I think the T would be silent, yeah. Okay. It could be pronounced, but I think it's silent.
1: From Bordeaux, France. It's a Bordeaux.
2: Okay, alright.
1: <laughs> and it's pretty good.
0: I agree. Corey, I'm gonna put you on the spot. I want you to list the notes you're getting from this wine. Okay. And then Sam's going to read them from the back of the bottle to us after we guess.
1: Oh, all right.
2: Okay, well, I'm getting notes of... Let me taste it real quick. Gotta switch it around in your mouth. Definitely grape. Yeah, definitely grape. That's a good start. Yeah. Yeah, I'm getting something... Maybe oak? Something woody?
0: I want to say plum or cherry. A little bit of tannin to it. Definitely tannins.
1: Don't all red wines have tannins?
0: Listen, if we were wine experts, we probably would have a wine podcast instead of a design podcast.
2: <laughs> no, yeah, it's just it's it's a red. It's uh, a little bitter. And. Uh,
1: and it yeah. gets you there.
2: Yeah, it gets you. It does the job. Yeah. So what what are, what are we looking at?
1: <laughs> OK, so. Produced in a renowned region This garnet-colored wine is made from high-quality grape varieties. The nose delivers intense red, ripe fruit aromas, cherry, black currant. It's dense on the palate and complemented by smooth tannins. Holy shit. Ideal serving temperature, 16 to 18 degrees Celsius slash 59 to 65 degrees
0: Fahrenheit. Okay, but I was pretty close. Like, I'm getting good at this.
1: Government warning.
0: (laughs) Should pregnant women drink?
1: According to the Surgeon General, (laughs) women should not drink alcoholic beverages during pregnancy.
2: Is that her PSA for the episode? (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
1: Um, Rococo wasn't so much uh, a type of architecture as it was a broader design movement. As Brian covered, it encompassed furniture as well uh, but it came about in the early 18th century as a reaction against earlier phases of the baroque design period which was actually the signature style of louis the reign
0: and like when you say movement like you're saying like this is another style it's probably the yes. way most people are going to think of this right
1: yes it was let me say really quickly it was uh actually considered the last phase of the Baroque period because there are a lot of similarities. It's like an adaptation. But it encompassed architecture, decorative arts and furnishings, paintings, sculpture, even music. I'm going to focus mainly on architecture and decorative arts, though.
0: It is interesting, though, because a few episodes ago, we talked about Saarinen and the GM Tech Center yeah, and how they used the concept of total design. And it was this like modern thought at the time. But really, centuries beforehand, they were just doing this all the time.
1: Oh, yeah. It's I'll get to that. That's nuts. So really quick. What is Baroque? Because, again, Rococo was in response to Baroque and was also kind of this baby baroque
0: and if it ain't baroque don't fix it right
1: i yes (laughs) did i steal your joke no okay yes (laughs) i'm just glad it was said you know
0: (laughs) i'm sorry No. (laughs) it was too easy it was too easy
1: it is too easy hence why my reference to that joke is from a disney movie so yes but i'm glad it was said we're all what, on the same page.
0: What what Disney movie is it from?
1: Beauty and the Beast. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it kind of gives you an idea of the time period. So anyway, what is Baroque? Characterized by curving intertwined lines and sculptural ornamentation, evoking movement and drama in vivid colors and gold, lots of gold, Baroque was endorsed by the Catholic Church as part of the Counter-Reformation in the 16th to mid-century in Italy and then it spread throughout Europe.
0: So lots of like spirally, leafy, like fancy looking things.
1: Fancy as shit. Yes.
0: <laughs> I think we can we can drop one F Bob and still be a PG thirteen podcast.
1: I feel comfortable with fancy as shit. Okay. All right. I feel good about that. When Louis the Fourteenth died in 1715, his heir to the throne was too young to rule, which was Louis the Fifteenth, who by the way was his like great grandson. What? Yeah. Wild. Just skipping all these guys. Oh,
0: did just a lot of guys die? No. They, just got they, named they other were things. still
1: around.
0: And he was just like, it's a no for me.
1: Yeah. Hard pass.
0: Savage. <laughs> yeah.
1: Anyway, uh, so that left the French aristocrats in charge, specifically uh, the hedonist regent Duke d'Orleans, who I, th- New Orleans. Okay. I think there's probably correlation there. Uh, and
0: probably,
1: <laughs> I mean,
0: if I may how could they
2: not? Why was he a hedonist?
1: Uh, he just was. He was wealthy and liked to do what he wanted. I guess. Was
2: That's he all having? I really know. Was he having a lot of menage a
1: Probably. So Rococo was his vibe. It was laid back, frivolous, and reflected the carefree lifestyle that thrived under a lack of accountability.
0: I don't think as of Rococo as being carefree. It just feels so stiff. Okay, I'll
1: get to that. It does not. But <laughs> there are sources that called it uh, degenerate, even, and <laughs> rebellious. So we'll get to
0: that. Repulsive, just like the sofa.
1: So Brian always asks me, what was the design need that they were addressing? And I'll explain it further, but I would describe their design need as kicking it.
2: that's pretty modern
1: so this sentiment was portrayed most literally in the paintings of the period which would often depict aristocrats dressed to the nines just kind of frolicking through these natural sometimes whimsical surreal maybe romantic settings and it was it was similar in opulence, but Rococo was a more playful, some say more ostentatious, some say exaggerated version of Baroque. It's also considered the feminized version of Baroque because of its scrollwork, the intertwined flowing lines and lighter colors, but still gold.
2: I would like to say what comes to mind when you bring that up in a contemporary uh, mindset is kind of Lady Gaga's fashion when she first kind of came out. It was very like out there, very mm-hmm. random, I get very so opulent, but like against the game. It wasn't just like very nice poofy dresses like, oh, I'm wearing this meat suit. And this meat suit's probably made out of venison and like like Kobe beef, but it's a meat suit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Against the green, I think, is a really good way to describe it. Um, So Rococo What is it? Why is it called that? Where did that name come from? It gets its name from the French word rocaille, which means rock or broken shell. It was initially attributed to Renaissance period garden grottos. So like not Baroque, but like a design period or two before. Uh, So these garden grottos would have seashells and pebbles embedded in stucco to create an elaborate decorative effect. And this theme of uh, nature, but unaffordable, carried over as the essence of Rococo.
0: Another thing I always think of with Rococo is just mirrors ev- everywhere. Yes,
1: that was a huge characteristic of Rococo, was mirrors to help make uh, spaces feel more open, more light, more airy. Also, essence C-shaped scrollwork, asymmetry, because uh, very focused on like natural forms. Uh, arabesque detailing, which is just kind of like intertwining lines, uh, and natural elements such as seashells, acanthus fronds, birds, flowers, fruit, and other types of foliage and wildlife. Uh, There were colorways of pastel, ivory, white, and gold, and carvings and reliefs created with stucco and other material. One source called Rococo the most rebellious of design styles, as it seemed to have no rules. And the source is the one that goes on to say that compared to the order, refinement, and seriousness of the classical style, Rococo was seen as superficial, degenerate, and illogical.
0: Rococo is so metal.
1: So metal. So metal, which
0: <laughs> yes. I think it's the third time I've said that in a row on an episode.
1: <laughs> I think I said that on our first episode when you were talking about bowls of blood, and I feel like uh, it's fair to say it's it's so metal or sure illogical because Rococo was uh, placing a minimal emphasis on architecture. And a maximum emphasis on decor. Basically, logic, structure, I think was all secondary. Does it look wild?
0: Yeah, and I I, I encourage you to just go Google Rococo and see what it looks like. If you, if you don't know what we're talking about, as long as you're not driving a vehicle or operating heavy machinery.
2: Is it too far out there to say that Rococo
0: is kind of like the Cheesecake Factory? I think if you take today's wild gardens and compare them to like a like Renaissance formal garden, that's kind of Rococo's relationship to the Cheesecake Factory.
1: So the new that's so metal is that Cheesecake
0: Factory is not metal whatsoever, though. Yeah, no, but
1: it's so Rococo. That's it, what I'm saying. It's a new expression. <laughs> that bowl of blood is so Rococo. <laughs> no, stop trying to make fetch happen. Is uh-huh. what you're saying. <laughs>
0: I just—I don't, don't think cory has got a one-for-one one analogy happening here. I just see what he's trying to lay down.
1: I see what he's trying to lay down too. The illogical
0: part and the natural forms and
1: yes, the natural the, forms of the cheesecake the factory. Emphasis
0: on appearance. The overabundance of menu items. How do they have? How are they capable of making so many things? It's—it's it's truly about quantity over quality with them, just like Rococo.
1: I'm not trying to undermine the quality of Rococo. I can't really speak to that. And I
0: am trying to undermine the quality of Cheesecake Factory. That's a, that's <laughs> on the record.
1: Brian's statements reflect the beliefs of
0: only Brian.
1: <laughs> and not the other hosts or uh, forming function Listen, as what? a brand.
0: If they want to sponsor us, I'll change my tune. I'll do an entire Cheesecake Factory episode. I'll but eat, until then... I'll eat nothing but cheesecake. Anyways... <laughs>
1: Uh, So at one point you had mentioned like this in in regards to uh, the tech center and our episode on corporate campuses that kind of design total design. Yeah. So Rococo was a kind of an earlier version of that because. Uh, By adorning these rooms with the carved scrollwork, the sculptural arabesque details, gilding paintings, other decorative elements, it created this fully immersive atmosphere to the point of being described as theatrical, and it was thought to be influenced by stage design. So not only was the detail work incorporated into the moldings, ceiling walls, and decorative arts of a space, but it would also also be used to seamlessly integrate art with the architecture through the use of stucco reliefs as frames and trompe l'oeil which is french for deceive the eye and is a method of painting two-dimensionally in a way so that it looks three-dimensional you know
0: what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying cuz I know there's a lot of baroque paintings, particularly Italian baroque paintings that are done on the ceilings where they're often in churches where it's meant to look like you're not looking at a painting, you're looking through a hole in the church into the heavens. Yes. And they have led me to literally lie down on the floor of a church at looking up until I get yelled at by security.
1: You should have just told them you found God. <laughs> What are they going so to say? Some people finding God
0: there all day long. They they don't have time for me.
1: <laughs> They're sick of it. They're yeah. like, please, you and 500 other people. But, you know, I mean, I'm sure it's miraculous each and every time. And with its emphasis on ornamentation, it's unsurprising that Rococo emerged as a style developed and disseminated by craftspeople and designers. And the spread of Rococo throughout Europe and the U.S. was largely due to pattern books published and used by makers. Uh, And the most influential of these books was a set of furniture designs called The Gentleman and Cabinet Makers Director by Thomas Chippendale in the mid-1700s.
0: Oh, yeah, we know him.
1: We do know him.
0: But two questions, though. Okay, first, architect comment. Yes. I see why it wasn't spread by architects, because no architect wants to do elevations and drawings of these Rococo rooms, because they would be so intricate and like... Like yeah. it's it's your nightmare. You're going to blow all of your fee immediately drawing these rooms. But to Rococo in America, like well, I didn't know that that was a thing. Actually,
1: that is more uh revival.
0: Rococo is it more in furniture than interiors.
1: It's more in furniture okay. than interiors Uh, like decorate. Yeah, more in like decorative arts, although not although because he was not an architect. I think Thomas Gainsborough, maybe he was British.
0: Sounds British
1: doesn't matter I said I wasn't going to cover the painters Brian okay so I am not responsible for that information
2: so quick question yeah would you consider uh items that are bedazzled to have their <laughs> origins in Rococo because you they're enabling the artists or the designers to have these elaborate kind of nonsensical designs but they're fun they're festive they're they're uh, a middle finger to form and like structure.
1: I could get there. I could absolutely get there.
0: That's a no for me, dog.
1: You just don't get it. You just don't get it, man. So anyway. He, he,
0: he, he, I I lifted him up with his first analogy and he flew too close to the sun with this one, I think.
1: Okay. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I couldn't identify with the Cheesecake Factory analogy. I've never even eaten there. I've seen it on Big Bang Theory. So, okay. (laughs) I know what the kids are talking about. Bazinga. Precisely. But this this bedazzled thing, I can really identify with that really. <laughs> and,
0: and and the down. reason it
2: like spoke to me was because you're talking about like seashells and all these other little things that create designs and like paintings, essentially, these depictions of art, using any means that are available to the people at the time, whether it's seashells, stones, blades of grass, you know whatever they were using. And now modern art allows you for little tiny, shiny bits of
0: plastic. The poor man's Rococo. I don't know. Renono?
1: No, no. <laughs> off friend Rococo. It's the it's the it's the Rococo you can get at Dollar Tree.
0: That I can buy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Great.
1: Uh okay. So <laughs> Chippendale Just really quick. Quick uh sidebar to the main bar. So Thomas Chippendale was a, an acclaimed furniture maker in the 18th century who Produced pieces so masterfully that some are now displayed in museums. So, but but despite you know his craftsmanship, he was most notoriously skilled in design. And thanks to his popular pattern book, he became practically synonymous with Rococo. And if anybody has watched uh, the series Welcome to Chippendales, I have. It also apparently was synonymous with like fanciness, leisure. Because that's why Comfort. I'm pretty uncomfortable <laughs> with that whole scene, but apparently that's why it was named Chippendale. The strip if- club. Yes. 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 According to the Hulu <laughs> uh Limited series. Is that what it's called? Short series?
0: Yeah, I had watched that too. And I I had always been so confused by that too. So I was glad they cleared that up.
1: Yeah. And it makes sense as like a business tactic. Um, Anyway, all good things come to an end, right? (laughs) So uh, in the 1780s, anyone? Anyone?
0: Rococo died. America was born.
1: Uh, Rococo did go the way of Marie Antoinette. And uh, it, yes, it, it was...
0: Oh, the aristocracy fell.
1: Yes. Uh, so the. Viva rev- la
0: resistance.
1: Precisely. The revolutionary fervor rose, and the people were sick of the aristocratic frivolity, to put it lightly. And along came the neoclassical movement, which was characterized by order, symmetry, simplicity, and a high regard for heroism and moral virtue, which is totally subtle.
0: Yeah, I mean, but if you if you were just a mob that killed your rulers and took over the country, stability is probably the thing you need in your life at that moment.
1: That's fair. You're looking out for their mental health, and I appreciate that, Brian. Uh, but Rococo did make a comeback throughout the eight. Well, Rococo made a few different comebacks throughout the 1800s with revivals in France, Britain, Germany, and the U.S.
2: Do the other nationalities have different flavors of Rococo? They do. Like, do the German ones have, like, you know, sausages?
1: That, I, <laughs> I did not get into that, because I was told to keep my section short this time, and that is has not been my strong suit. So if I had looked that up, we would have been in big trouble. But yes, there are different variations based on the different regions of Rococo. Uh, and I think a lot of that also had to do with the the prominent artists that were... Using the style at the time, it was just completely up for interpretation. It had no rules. It was a degenerate style of design.
0: Yeah, the art history fan of me can tell you that definitely between like Italy, France, Britain, and other places in Europe, like it definitely Mm -hmm. there was a local flair to everything. But I, but no, no, I highly doubt there's any sausage based but i will say
1: just really quickly i do know that uh chippendale's version of rococo had a lot of chinese and gothic influences
2: there's a sausage joke there but i'm not gonna make it is there chippendale sausages
1: oh sorry i thought you were going off gothic and i was like is it pierced Uh because there's there's uh, somebody made a point that like you can still tie Rococo back to like modern designs like rifle paper uh, has a lot of like floral designs that's a brand of just like stationery. basically anything with like a heavy floral but also kind of like abstract not focused on symmetry or order you could argue was inspired by Rococo so despite the fact that Rococo seems to have had no function
0: it was formed <laughs>
2: if you got a brain itch about a design question that you'd like sam or brian to dive into send it their way at forming function and be sure to keep up with them on instagram and facebook at forming function podcast forming function is produced by brian moore and sam malott with audio mixing and editing by Jeffrey Brown. Theme music by Paul Corsi with music recording and editing by Aaron Moore. Season one is sponsored in part by Michigan Architectural Foundation.
0: And a special thanks to Corey Morris for asking the question and joining us in the studio today. And if you want to learn more about uh, the French Age of Comfort, a book that helped me tremendously for... This episode was The Age of Comfort, When Paris Discovered Casual by Joan Dejean. She has tons of stories in there about other inventions in this period of French history and how they led to the development of a comfortable lifestyle that was not previously present in people's lives. So uh, this was just one chapter of many. If you want to hear more, go check out her book. Thanks for listening and join us next time.